But um, today is the if you if you keep if your history is accurate today is the 100th year anniversary of the armistice that ended called a ceasefire to the Great War, uh, now known as World War One. It was on November the 11th at 11 a.m. there in Europe where the, the treaty was signed. It ended the war. There's been a lot of discussion about that war. How many um, tens of millions of people died? Greg survived. But it's just, um, the, the thing that I saw said 17 million, had people, 17 million people had died in, in this great war. And it affected so many nations, and not exactly sure what caused it, but there was a spate of nationalism, and uh, one nation against another nation. And so it's, it's sort of that humble backdrop of, of what's been happening in the world that I want to begin today. But um, <clears throat> I was telling Julie on the way over here, is when you're preparing for a message, you, know, you just want to make sure you get the facts right. It's one thing. But it can... It, it can turn into a, some sort of academic exercise if you're not careful. You know, you're studying the library books and you're reading what the things say and you're contemplating this and that. And it can really become academic. And I don't want that to happen today. So let's pray that this will be a, um, a meaningful message spoken from the heart. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask that you would... Um, inhabit these praises, Lord, that we've offered up to you. And Lord, as we hear your voice and you're speaking to us through your word, it wouldn't just be an academic exercise here this morning. But Lord, you would be, you'd be working deep within our heart, within our minds and within our spirits to make us into the people that you want us to be. Lord, we've seen what can happen with, with wars and the death and destruction, Lord, all unleashed because of Adam's sin. And Lord, we know that we are made for more than this. And you have a glorious future, Lord, for those who cling to you. So Father, we pray that you'd speak to our hearts this morning. In spirit, would you come and uh, enlighten our hearts, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so there's a preamble to the message this morning, and it, it, in Crosswave this year, we are we divide up in age groups. We have eight different or seven different groups, and um, towards the end of a, of a discussion within that group, we offer them if you could ask one question that God would surely answer, what would it be? And so, this question came up in September. They asked. Was a sacrifice necessary, or could people be saved from sin some other way? And you know, at first, at first blush, how would you answer? It was necessary. <laughs> how would you answer that question? A twelve-year-old is asking you, "Was a sacrifice necessary?" If it wasn't necessary, Jesus would have had come. Well, I'm just glad to know that we have teenagers and preteens thinking about their salvation in such a way as this, that they want to, they've got this type of question. They want to know the basis of salvation and, and how does new life with God really begin? But as I was 
kind of developing an answer for that, how I don't want to answer it, it, it caused me to think about, well, how does Christianity compare to other religions? Because really, it, you know, when you get to with well, a sacrifice necessary, you're getting at the heart of what we believe as Christians. So today I want to investigate both things. I want to investigate was a sacrifice necessary, but also a little comparison between religions of what, how do other religions approach salvation? I'll put it in quotes because what does it really mean? Um, but I gave them one scripture to begin because the Bible speaks clearly about this in Leviticus 17.11. It says, For the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So now you've introduced this new word, atonement. Evidently, atonement is critical for salvation to happen. Without an atonement, there is no salvation. Atonement means to be made right with someone after you've sinned against them. It's making amends to restore relationship. It involves sacrifice, it involves pardon, it involves forgiveness. Since we are all guilty of sin, and we all stand in need of God's pardon, we all need to be atoned for. Our sin needs to be atoned for. God's judgment on sin was death. And ever since that moment death has reigned in all creation the curse even extended to plants and animals death has impacted every living thing the truth is if we are to regain ever to regain our living relationship with god then all of our sin must be atoned for this verse tells us that it requires blood why does it require blood Because the life of the creature is in the blood. The cost of atonement is that a life must be given. So if you use the scripture as your basis for understanding, you realize that a sacrifice is necessary. There was a second scripture, Hebrews 9.22, and it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin." So we see um, something had to happen. There, blood had to be shed that there might be atonement, that there might be forgiveness so that we might have life with Christ, have life with God. <clears throat> There's no other way to be made right with God. So how do other religions approach this? What, on what basis do they ever believe that they've Acquired salvation with God. So there's a little jump here in the message. Um, All religions basically have at least two things in common. One, they're all searching for relief from guilt and shame and fear. Even if they never acknowledge God or think that there might be millions of gods. They all design ways to make themselves acceptable working to earn God's favor through their own sacrifice and choices, placing the burden of salvation on their own backs. Of course, some religions deal with guilt, fame, shame, and fear by pretending it doesn't exist. They just say it's a myth. 
And two, most religions share the goal of trying to find some sort of meaning and purpose in their lives, right? They, they want to answer the questions, who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? And what happens next? These questions have been asked in every language and in every generation and in every religion on the earth. Who has the, the right answer? I mean, if there's many, many answers, they all can't be correct. If one answer is right, that means other answers are wrong. So a view of some major religions, uh, Hinduism, for instance, began in the 6th century B.C., so 500 B.C. They believe God, Brahman, is unlimited, so they acknowledge an infinite number of gods. And you've heard my story, perhaps, of the 330 million gods the Hindus worship. Um, Vedas are their sacred, sacred writings, but some of them reject that as being uh, sacred. Dharma includes the describes the duties of living the right way, also re- refers to how the universe works, and then there's Atman and Karma and Samsara, which basically describe a process where the temporary body dies and is reincarnated into a new form based on your actions in your prior life. Jesus is considered a holy man and one of the 330 million gods. But he's no savior. It's all on you. To live a life that when you die, you'll be reincarnated in something better than you were before. And this goes on and on and on and on and on until you finally reach this perfect state. Now, through in New Age philosophies, because it's a wide range of rituals and beliefs and psychological fads, which all basically focus on the self, um, if there is a God, it's a cosmic, impersonal God, and really an energy force that you can learn to capture and harness for your own realization. If gods exist, well, they are us. Since there's no command given by God and there's no sin, and if there's no sin, then there's no repentance or salvation is required. Jesus is no God and there is no Savior. So that kind of leaves us nowhere. Islam came about in the early 600s, devoted to one transcendent God with Muhammad as his prophet. The Quran, they follow the Quran, which is the, the words given by Muhammad the six articles of faith, the five pillars. Jesus was a good prophet, but he was less than Muhammad. And he was neither divine nor savior, nor was he ever crucified. Because God would never let his son be crucified, Islam says. Buddhism, 5th century BC, so it's been around a while, doesn't emphatically deny God's existence, but places no value on him. You seek to reach a state of nirvana by pursuing the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the five precepts, and the noble eightfold path. These literally are the names of uh, the practice of Buddhism. Desire is the cause of all suffering, they believe. Jesus was a wise teacher to them, but neither divine nor savior. I added atheism just for comparison. Denies any existence of God. Therefore, guess what? 
We are the wisest creatures around. Without God, again, there's no sin. Without commands, there's no obligations. There's no repentance for salvation required. Jesus, if he existed, was a lunatic. Really. And then you have Christianity. And there's, you know, there's thousands of other ones, but these are the major ones. And Christianity is basically the opposite of all this. Instead of man searching for God, God searches for and finds man. Instead of man developing strategies and ways to reach God, God came in the person of Jesus to save man, doing what men were unable to do for themselves, to make us clean and restore a relationship with God. He even takes up resonance in our hearts by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Christians serve an infinite and personal God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. Jesus is divine and saves all who have faith that call upon him. <clears throat> so you're thinking about this and you, you know, your, your approach to life, your approach to a whole lot, this whole idea of, of salvation, your approach to re- your relationship with God can be starkly different. And then we wonder why there are wars. <laughs> why are there wars? There's some summary points to remember here. Christianity is the only religion that believes that when we were at our worst, God came to save us. Every other religion teaches that men must earn their way to God. Romans 5.8 tells us, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now that can be an academic thought. Or that can be the treasure of your life. That can be a treasure for you. Other two other religions follow man-made rules to appease their God. <clears throat> but Christianity is not about what we have to do for God. It's about what Jesus has done for us. Our life with God is made whole by Jesus Himself. Now we follow God's supernaturally inspired word. Because he loves us and we want to express our love for him. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. Now that could be an academic statement. Or that could be the treasure of your life. We love. We can love other people. We can love every other person. We can love our enemies. Because he first loved us. We don't have to get caught up at all these ways of the world. Three, these are the three summary points. No other religion has an empty tomb. Christians are the only people who follow a leader who died but returned to life. Every other major religious founder is dead. They offer nothing. They promise nothing. They are doomed. But Jesus is alive. Matthew 28, 6a says, He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Now this could be an academic thought. I know he's alive. 
But when you know he's alive, your life is different. Christians are persuaded to believe in part because the evidence that we have that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, what evidence are you talking about? Well, we have the testimonies of those who saw him. We have, we have the witness of their changed lives. We have fulfilled prophecies. We have the signs and wonders. We have the whole New Testament. And we have the fire within our hearts that this is true. It's not a leap in the dark. It's not just wishful thinking. Jesus is alive. Now, if religion were merely a man-made exercise in wishful thinking, like many atheists claim, who would ever think of Christianity to follow? It's so inconvenient. It's so supernatural. It's strange. It tells the repeated failure of men to live in harmony with God. The whole Bible is filled with characters and they are all failures except for one. What other religion humiliates their leaders, their founders in such a way is that Christianity, because we all point to Christ. The Bible tells about our wanting to do things our own way, to seek our own independence, the pride of our lives. Christianity is about giving and serving and rejoicing and suffering and loving. And I was thinking about Roger's message about the persecuted church. What is it that can hold people to their faith when they're being persecuted for that very faith? Something unusual has happened. So there are many reasons people hold the religious views that they do. Frequently, they flow out of a sense of comfort or justice or pride or a question of why things aren't better in the world today. And why is there so much evil in the world? There can't be a God because there's so much evil. I hear that a lot. Most people hold God responsible for their happiness and for the peace of the world or the lack of peace. But they reject any demand a holy God might make on them. A divine force shouldn't be able to control their actions on Saturday night. Most religions are high on individual liberty and low on individual responsibility. And most refuse to give God the glory and thanks and honor he deserves for his blessings and grace. Saving faith is not without evidence. Christians don't deny reality. They discover reality. Faith is believing the evidence that he gives. It's trusting in the hope and knowing the truth that God has revealed so that we can be saved from our sin. This was sort of my answer to that first question. Was a sacrifice needed? But then the next month at Crosswave, they came back with another question after they had heard the answer to the first. A more specific question. Why did it have to be Jesus' blood and no other? Why did it have to be Jesus' blood? I mean, I understand there was a sacrifice that had to be made, but, but why did it have to be Jesus' sacrifice that had to be made? And suddenly, you start thinking about how you would answer that question. And now you are pulling threads from every doctrine of faith that we have of explaining why Jesus 
is the Messiah. You're drawing from the very source that makes Christianity unique among all the religions of the world. There is a root problem that must be solved for man to be saved. And it is this. Here's the problem. You might think it's man's sin. Well, that's only part of the problem. There's a bigger problem. The bigger problem is this. God, in the ancient past, chose to create for himself a people. In his own image. For which he would give eternal life as the bride of his son. God made that promise. It's almost called the the covenant of redemption. This agreement in the Godhead. We are going to create a people in our own image. And we are going to give them eternal life. And they will be the bride of the Son of God. However, he makes the man and the woman. And they all sin. And they separated themselves from God. And according to God's justice and his judgment, we all deserve eternal death, not eternal life. And this decree of God, this judgment of God, is unalterable. The Bible gives many hints about the king who who issues unalterable laws in Scripture. And certainly the law of God is unalterable. It cannot be modified, changed, or rescinded. So see, here's the problem. God made a promise... Created men as a part of fulfilling that promise. We sin and suddenly is God's promise null and void? How is his word going to come true that he is going to redeem a people, a family, a bride for his, his dear son and still be a just God and hold people accountable for their sin? That's the issue. That's the problem that salvation solves. And this is what makes God's salvation, as I spoke a couple of months ago, so great, so perfect, so mysterious, so wonderful. The problem is not only how man can be saved, but how can God save anyone and still be just and righteous? A righteous judge must punish the guilty. How could God solve this problem? It's God's problem to solve. Nevertheless, nevertheless, God promised the Messiah. And it's interesting the wording here. And this is where the academic side. It's interesting the wording. God promised the Messiah to spring from the woman. He didn't say to spring from the man. To spring from the woman. The Savior. From the offspring of the woman. The seed of the woman. Who would crush the enemy in his work. And then this is third scripture I shared with the Crosswave team when they said, is there anybody else? Why Jesus? Because the night before Jesus was to be crucified, he went into a garden and he prayed and he asked the gods using these words. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then again, one, that's, that's Luke twenty two twenty four forty two. 42. I'm sorry, Luke 22, 42, and then Mark 14, 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. It looks to me that even Jesus asked God, is there any other way? This question 
that comes up. Is there any other way of salvation? Or why aren't there more ways? Even Jesus asked God the Father that question. Isn't there any other way to do this? And Jesus poured out His heart to the Father. The the one who's in mind who created everything that we feel and taste and experience. Is there any other way you can think of that this can happen? That your promise to this elect bride of Christ can be fulfilled and you maintain your just and righteous position? Is there any other way? Even Jesus asked the Father that question. This good teacher Jesus, as some religions recognize, who is still esteemed by their religion around the world today, asked the same question of God. And the apostles answered by saying in Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Why was it Jesus' blood? Because there's no other way for this to happen. Why aren't there more ways to God? Let's be thankful that there is one way. But there's no other way to satisfy all the requirements. I'm going to explain. To give the evidence to Israel and to all who would believe, God made more than 300 promises and prophecies about the coming Messiah. And these promises were recorded over a period of 1,200 years, and the last one was at least 400 years before he came. These are promises about what the Messiah is going to be like, and these are prophecies about his life. The essence of these prophecies about the Messiah means that he must meet certain requirements. Plus, there are essential attributes that the Messiah must display to save his pride for eternity. I'll make a list of them. Or some of them. It's hard to list them all. (laughs) He must be fully human. The Savior must be fully human. He must be a man who experiences all the weaknesses and needs and temptations and emotions and pains that humans experience. And to prove the point and leave no doubt, he must experience these things to the greatest degree. Somebody can't come up to Christ and say, I experienced more pain than you did. He had to experience all of those to the greatest degree. So he must be purely human and a man. But he must be a man born without sin. Well, that's a big problem. (laughs) Because all men descending from Adam, everybody who's descending from Adam is sinful. That means that while he cannot be a physical male descendant of Adam, he must be a legal male descendant of King David. And he must be born in Bethlehem. I want you to see this because this is the story and the mystery and the beauty of Christmas Mm -hmm. how could he be descendant from Adam yet not receive Adam's sin and yet be a legal descendant of King David except be born of the union between a Virgin Mary and the Holy Spirit 
This is a supernatural religion. This, this, this requires faith to understand how God did this. And if you think there must be more than one way, how it took a miracle for this to happen. Third thing, just like Adam, he must be tempted directly by Satan himself. At least to the extent Adam was, and probably even surpass it, because think, Adam was tempted, he had his beautiful wife there with him, he was in the Garden of Eden, everything was provided for him. He had all the food he wanted, he had all the comfort he needed, he had everything. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness after 40 days of fasting. He had nothing. There was no comfort. There was no food. There was no presence of any other person. And that's when he was tempted by the devil. So Jesus must be tempted directly by Satan himself to a greater degree than Adam was and yet resist all sin. And he must bring every thought Choice, decision, speech, action toward God and all other men to obedience to God's word. Can you think of anyone else who did this? And also, through every temptation of his entire life, he must remain pure and without blemish, morally perfect, sinless. And he must fulfill every aspect of the covenants God had established with Adam and with Noah and with Abraham and with Moses, and with David. And he must also fulfill the covenant of redemption that was made among the Trinity concerning the saving of a bride for the Son of God. He must fulfill God's plan perfectly. I'll go on. But there's another problem that comes up. Because you see, death is only a result of sin. And if you never sinned, and you never had sin, you don't have to die. Jesus never sinned. He, he was not born, he was not conceived in sin. He did not have to die. His life was indestructible. We are sinners, and our death is not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. I'm sorry to remind you of this. But it's a matter of when. But Jesus was sinless. He didn't have to die. His, his death was a matter of if. And what was the if? If he would be willing to lay down his life for his bride. You know, we sing these worship songs. I was singing here this morning. And I'm thinking about my Savior who loves me and what he did for me. He chose, he didn't have to die. I mean, good people will die for someone now. They'll take a bullet. They'll give their kidneys. So they'll do these things. But they're just changing the date of their death. Jesus didn't have to die. He had to choose to die. <clears throat> In fact, not only did he have to choose to die, he had to choose to be willing to be cursed by God. <coughs> By dying on a cross, he must bear the full wrath of God against sin. That was his choice. 
He must also perform many signs and wonders. All done and completed to give evidence of his power over all creation, over death, and of his mercy for all men. He must be beaten, rejected, crucified, buried. (laughs) And then he must rise from the dead, y'all. Who else fits all of these categories of Savior? Um, But there's more. In addition to being fully God and fully man, the Savior must also be a greater high priest than Aaron, although not a son of Levi, which is another physical issue that's got to be dealt with. And instead of offering annual sacrifices in the man-made temple, he would once and for all offer the perfect eternal sacrifice in the actual throne room of God. 1 Peter 1, 18-20 says, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. And now in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. So he must be a greater high priest than Aaron. He must be also be a greater prophet than Moses because he writes his words of truth not on tablets of stone, but on our hearts. And he establishes a new and better covenant. Hebrews 9.15 tells us, Therefore Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So he's a greater priest than Aaron, he's a greater prophet than Moses, and he must be a greater king than David ruling not over Israel, but over every creature, over every nation, over all creation, as it's unthinkable to think of a king without having a kingdom. Well, what is the kingdom of Jesus? All creation. When Jesus ascended to heaven to be crowned as king, the Father also designed the realm over which he rules, which will be the new Jerusalem and the new earth, all creation. And of course, in all these things, he must be greater than all the angels, those heavenly beings who dwell in God's presence and obey and execute God's commands. And there's one more thing. He must have, he must have a motivation to do all this. He must have a cause to do these things. And, and he must be motivated by his devotion to God the Father. And he must be motivated by his love for the Father and his love for his people. And he must be motivated to receive the joy that's set before him by delighting in the Father's commands. And and he must be motivated by the glory of fully achieving God's plan, God's wise and good plan. And he must be motivated to reveal perfectly to all people God the Father, what God is like. The exact nature of God. So that his bride 
would rejoice and marvel at his glory as he makes all things completely new. So when you think about it, why did it have to be the blood of Jesus? Well, no other blood would do to accomplish everything that it's accomplished. But if we live in a place where we don't really appreciate or understand all that Jesus accomplished for us, we can still try to work our own way to salvation. And we can try to negate the work of Christ. We can think it's all about us and our pride and whether we do it right or not. And we lose sight of the fact that this is not an academic exercise. This is the God-man who came. The conclusion is this. The only salvation that could maintain God's justice yet fully solve the problem of man's sin required a perfect, sinless God-man to lay down his life. To choose to lay down his life. A perfect man with only a human nature, could save no one but himself. If Tia was without sin, then God would accept Tia into heaven. But Tia, your perfection would do nothing for the rest of us. So how is it that the perfections of Christ do apply to the rest of us? Well, that's another good question. A divine person who also has a human nature, can save all those whom he has chosen to save. Because Jesus' divine person is infinite, the merit or the value of his suffering according to his human nature can be applied to many people. And the application is through faith, which was God's choice. Salvation requires this infinite divine person to suffer according to their human nature not their divine nature, by yielding themselves to death even though they did not have to die. Jesus is the only one with both human nature and divine nature who could accomplish such a great salvation. No other religion offers any Savior anywhere remotely comparable to Jesus. Nothing. They offer nothing. So Jesus can, is alone, the one who can save. He alone fulfilled all the prophecies and the promises. He alone performed all the signs and wonders. He claimed to be God with power to forgive and to create. Yes, Jesus gave his life to save us. Billy Graham once said, the difference between Christianity and other religions is Jesus Christ. He is the center and the foundation of the Christian faith. And he is the difference maker. You are a Christian if you believe Jesus saved you. It's still true today that every religion stumbles over who they think Jesus is. This is the question Jesus asked for himself in Luke 9.20 when he said, But who do you say I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. So Paul urges us to proclaim For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. I'm going to tell you a little story from R.C. Sproul. Maybe you've heard it before. He tells a story of a very embarrassing and painful situation he had as a young college student. Here he goes. 
I'd only been a Christian a short time. I was full of zeal, and it was no secret to my professors or classmates that I was a Christian. One day we were in English class, and the professor was a hard-bitten war correspondent from World War II. She was a woman, and she was overtly hostile to Christianity, and made no bones about it in our English class. On this occasion, she singled me out in front of the whole class and said, Mr. Sproul, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God? Now, you can imagine yourself in that situation if you're a Christian, where publicly someone calls on you and asks, somebody with authority over you calls upon you and asks, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God? R.C. says, I wanted to disappear into the floor because I immediately felt confrontation and pressure. I knew that if I said, yes, he's the only way, that the wrath of this teacher was going to come down on me without any end. I also knew that if I said no, I would be guilty of treason to Christ. It was a no-win situation. So so when she said, Mr. Sproul, do you believe that Jesus is the only way to God? I sort of mumbled yes under my breath. But she heard it. And as I anticipated, she exploded in fury. And in rage, said something to this effect. That is the most bigoted, narrow-minded, arrogant statement I have ever heard. How can you think that Jesus Christ is the only way to God? And I turned crimson. And the rest of the class looked at me with other disdain, like I had committed the worst act of bigotry. So I said, well, here's my problem. I didn't come at this thing looking for the only way. I'm as American as you are. I'm not looking for some narrow view of things. I said, but I got to the place where I was persuaded that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. And when I read in the New Testament that this Jesus, of whom I am persuaded was a Son of God, opened his mouth and said things like this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. I understand what a universal negative is. When Jesus says, no man comes to the Father except by me, He's eliminated all other options. This is the same Jesus who said, I am the door through which men must enter. I am the good shepherd. The rest are hirelings. All the others are thieves and robbers trying to violently break into my father's kingdom where they have no right. I said, don't you see that there is no other name under heaven through which men must be saved than through the name of Christ? I said, Don't you see that if I believe that Christ is one way, I have to believe that he's the only way. Else, I have to believe that this one who is is one way is dead wrong when he claims to be the only way. And if he's dead wrong when he claims to be the only way, I'd be foolish to think that he's even one way. R.C. spoke well. It's the blood of Christ, the life of Christ shed for us. Jesus Christ fulfilled every promise, every prophecy, every covenant. He demonstrated every office of prophet and priest and king. And he was motivated by by love for God 
and for the glory of God and for the life of his, of his bride. We have a perfect salvation. If we believe in this Jesus, we have a perfect salvation. <clears throat> so this verse where Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is not an academic exercise. <laughs> this is reality. And one of the ways this becomes reality is when we take communion. You probably didn't expect me to say that. But communion is not academic. It's about recognizing that Christ is in us. Carla. <laughs> in our bloodstream. In our wind passages. In our mind and our spirit. He's in us. When we take the bread, we are saying, Christ, we are eating your flesh. We want you in us to that degree. And we are in him. We remember him. We remember his sacrifice for us. His blood shed for us. His life laid down for us. His presence within us. His resurrection. We remember his promise to never forsake us. To never leave us. Let us give thanks to God that he chose to reveal himself to us. And let's ask the Spirit of God to convict us of sin and that we'd be quick to confess and repent. So we're going to prepare for communion and as the Bible instructs, this act of worship is reserved for those of you who believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that He has forgiven you from all your sins. So we're going to make, maybe we can take up these two more chairs. And I'm going to ask, Greg, why don't you come up here? Um, <clears throat> slide this back. Yeah, I'll get it. Take that. I just want to read this one more scripture. So, why why did it have to be Jesus? Sacrifice. It took the sacrifice of a Messiah, this perfect Lamb of God, this Jesus. Then you will walk with Him forever, and He will walk with you forever. I'm just going to read this one verse. I'm going to ask you to come. And He took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This is the cup that is poured out for you. This is the cup that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. So, Greg, why don't you pray, and then we'll ask people to come.
Well, there's only one way. There's only one way because this is what the creator of the universe has ordained. And that through your great love and your great mercy, you called us. You said, remember. Call to mind all that I've done, all that I've said, and know that there's no other way. So we just ask you, Lord, to cause us to remember. Your body was broken for us. Your blood was shed for us. And Lord, we just um, are grateful. And we ask you to forgive us of our sins yet again. Because it's not a once and all thing.